The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. The show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and Today, 1976, Episode 10, Being 33 and a Third. In this final episode of 1976, we'll cover November 20th through December 31st. November 20th, Saturday night in New York City. Five days before America celebrates Thanksgiving Day. That evening on NBC television. The following program is brought to you in living color on NBC. Mm-hmm. This land is your land. This land is my land. Cow, thank you. Feel it's a real good chance that I could look like a fool. Is what I'm worried about. Not a chance. 
really. You just have to you just have to have confidence when you go out there. Believe me, it'll work. I hope you're right. You believe me? I hope I don't believe you, but I hope you're right. I'll see you. Really, I think right. It would be great. You better you better change. If you're right, Lord. Fine, I'll tell you one thing, you want to get it straight in the future, you know. I mean, I you know. Go around but, I mean if you don't things if you don't go on tonight, it'll new word. I know, but if you don't go on tonight, it'll, it'll break his heart. I mean it must be See, I thought that you would understand that if it was, you know, 3000 for four people, then it would just be $750 for the people. <laughs> well, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, you could have it, but full $3,000, it's the network. Pretty chintzy. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, I mean, I, I know that there's another $250 available uh, for the opening, for the, the person who says live from New York on Saturday night. Live from New York, it's Saturday night. <laughs> When the turkey concept was first brought up, I said, there's a very good chance I'm going to end up looking stupid if I come out and wear it. I mean, everyone said, oh, it's Thanksgiving. Go ahead, you know. I felt it was not in any way in keeping with my image, the lyrics, the box, or any of those songs. They said, hey, you know, you take yourself so seriously. Why don't you stop taking yourself so seriously for a while, loosen up a little bit, and maybe people will laugh. You want to be Mr. Alienation? You can be Mr. Alienation. Well, I didn't want to be Mr. Alienation. I, I don't want to, I want to be a regular guy, but I feel this has just been a disaster. I'm sorry, I'm just gonna go and change. It's this is just a terrible mistake on I never saw 
wonderful. You call that wonderful? What, you had a problem? It was one of the most humiliating experiences of my life. What, what the band came in late? The band is fine. The band? I don't understand what the problem the is. The problem is I'm singing still crazy after all these years in a turkey outfit. Well, would you like to sing in a turkey outfit? I thought it worked great. Yeah, what do I look like? Jan Michael Vincent here? You think I'm looking look good? great. Honestly, why, why don't you just go change for the Yeah, let's time, just okay? do that. Let's all just right. say it was I a difference of opinion. Okay, maybe it was a difference of opinion, but I think it worked great. We'll be uh, right back after this uh, following message. I can't fit through the door! All right, I'll help Ladies and gentlemen, my friend George Harrison.
Thank you. I'm sitting in the railway station, got a ticket for my destination. On a tour of one night stands, my suitcase and guitar in hand. And every stop is neatly planned for a poet and a one man band. Homeward bound, I wish I was. Homeward bound. Home, where my thoughts are escaping. Home, where my music's playing. Home, where my love lies waiting silently for me. Every day is an endless stream of cigarettes and magazines. And each town looks the same to me, the movies and the factories. And every stranger's face I see reminds me that I long to be homeward bound. I wish I was homeward bound. Home, where my thoughts are sleeping, home, where my music's playing, home, where my love lies waiting silently for Tonight I'll sing my songs again and I'll play the game and pretend mm -hmm. But all my words come back to me in shades of mediocrity Like emptiness in harmony I need someone to comfort me Homeward bound I wish I was Where my thoughts escaping home, where my music's playing home, where my love lies waiting silently for me, silently for me. On November 22nd in America, Records released the single Hey Baby by Ringo Starr. The B-side is Lady Gay. Both songs are taken from Ringo's Roto Gravier album that was released earlier this year. After many delays and setbacks, finally on November 24th in America, Dark Horse Records released the album 33 and a Third by George Harrison. The title of the album, 33 and a Third, is that a comment on uh, your feelings about the state of the art, the album <laughs> artist, or uh, perhaps well, the state of your own uh, chronological development? Yeah, it's like um, during the course of making an album, it's always 
in your mind what the album's going to be called, sometimes it's obvious from, you can call it one of the names of the song, which is uh, sometimes that works okay, and other times it misrepresents the total album. And also it tends to highlight a song which may not necessarily be, you know, the main song in the package. So it, I think all artists have the same problem of trying to think of a catchy title, one that looks good and sounds good, and that may somehow relate to an overall album. And this one I thought 33 and a third, because obviously that's what an, an album plays at, the speed, but because that was my age when I was cutting the uh, the tracks on it, I realized that I was 33 and a third, so it's uh, from that historical point of view. When you write a song, uh, uh, Woman, Don't You Cry, do you, um, do you approach it from the, uh, the music first or the lyrics first? Uh, let's talk about Woman, Don't You Cry. Mm. Usually, a, you know, it's all different ways. Um, sometimes I get a whole tune with no lyrics and write the lyrics later. Sometimes, like Crackerbox Palace, I get the title first and then I write a song around the title. Uh, other times I just get maybe um, melody and some lyric idea at the same time. Like Woman Don't You Cry for me was really like uh, one of my first influences as a kid when I was about 13, 14, that period of time when I first got a guitar. The big craze in England was skiffle, which is like bluegrass or, you know, folky sort of, that sort of thing. And it was easy to play. There was a lot of band skiffle groups which used acoustic guitar and you only had to know two chords, which really got people off the ground playing. And they have a, an old tea chest with a broom handle and a piece of rope as the bass and a washboard with thimbles. And that song, Woman Don't You Cry, is really like that style, but then at around the time when I was, you know, hanging out with uh, Eric Clapton, you know, and he really was a big influence to help me get back into the guitar, because I went through a period where I just played sitar for years, and I never played any uh, guitar. I just forgot about it. And then Eric you know, I was friendly with Eric and he gave me this great guitar and I really got back involved and I started to try and play slide, slide guitar. I always wanted to sort of be able to catch up a bit on my guitar playing because by that time we was not playing it for so long and we'd given up playing live dates that I was very rusty, you know, and, right. and all kinds of players, little kids coming up eight years old, you know, playing the best licks you've ever heard. So I felt a bit sort of behind. And I got back involved with the guitar due to Eric, and you know, I always admired him as a guitar player and as a friend. And uh, that song really goes back like the old Skiffle days, it's just, you know, a couple of chords, but played more in the uh, country rock sort of thing with slide guitar for my old pal Clapper.
you tell us a little bit about what went into the inspiration and the creation of Dear One, which is mm. one of one of yeah. my favorite songs on this album. Yeah, mine too, actually. Um, I dedicate Dear One to Paramansa Yogananda, who's um, a Swami from India who left his body in 1952, as opposed to dying. He left his body, and uh, he's been probably the greatest inspiration to me from all of the, uh, you know, I met a lot of the really good uh, swamis and yogis, and uh, I like the company whenever I got the chance to spend some time with them. Yogananda I never met personally in this body, but uh, he had such terrific influence on me for some very subtle reason. I can't quite put my finger on it. And I just uh, dedicate this to him because it's like um, a lot of my feelings are the result of what he taught and his teachings still in his subtle state. And I wrote this, as I told you earlier, this song was one of the newest songs I'd written. And uh, it's like a prayer, really. It's a prayer, and again, you know, just um, a realization of, of, of that appreciation.
girl for me I can see all around beautiful girls in one way you know ones who have who look good and sometimes you see ones who don't particularly look good but have such beauty within them and when you get a combination of both then it's fantastic uh, beauty to me is uh, something which comes from within and is not limited to the physical body, although that is helpful. <laughs> it's natural. <laughs> yeah, that is natural, but, you know, so it's really just something which is coming out of the heart. You know, beauty like that. <laughs>
told us last night that there's a song there that you think Elvis should record, a thing called Beautiful Girl. Yeah, I actually was watching Elvis at um, Las Vegas on a videotape with Alvin Lee. Uh, just before I left England, and uh, you know how Elvis was doing his karate chops, and right. he's got a big orchestra and horns and singers and everything, and he does like the big production. That tune, he could do it like that. Never seen such a beautiful girl, me shaking This song and the new oh, album. Oh, right. So this song, it says, this song has nothing tricky about it. It's just like coming out there. This song ain't black or white, and as far as I know, don't infringe on anyone's copyright. So uh, this song we let be. This song is in E. This song is for you and your aunties. And I got a friend of mine to put in a bit there, because when it gets into it's got like that Tamla sort of line bass line and so it says uh, this song could be you could be and then I've got I always heard this in my mind I got uh, Eric Idle who was one of the ex Monty Pythons to throw in the line but he says could be sugar pie honey bunch <laughs> and the other voice says now nah, sounds more like rescue me so I mean that's where it's at you know
is a very um, multi-dimensional song. Uh, listening to it, it, it makes you uh, see yourself, uh, as the title says, and that's one of the most difficult things that it makes any you human think, being at has. Least. When, you, when you wrote the song, See Yourself, was that a comment from you to any individual, or was it a comment uh, from you to the world as it reacts to you? Or third, was it just a comment of we should all see ourselves in a general way? Yeah, it was more like that in a general way. It could be see myself. Oh, I see. Or, so it wasn't, or, person, it wasn't no. a personal statement to any individual. The original idea in the first verse came about in the 60s when this thing happened with uh, Paul McCartney. And he'd, uh, the press, well, everybody who goes back and remembers that period will know that there was a big story in the press where somehow they'd found out, they'd heard Paul had taken out the dreaded LSD, and they came hounding him saying, okay, have you taken LSD? And he said, uh, well, look, whatever I say, I'm going to tell the truth. Whatever I say, I just want you to know that it's you, the media, are going to be the people who spread out what I say. And they were saying, did you take it? And he said, yeah, I took it. And they put it in all over the papers. Paul McCartney's, then they all came after us all saying, have you had it? Have you had it? And we said, sure, we had it years ago. Um, but then there was an outcry saying, you should have said you didn't take it. In effect, they were saying, you should have told a lie. That the responsibility was his. Yeah, they pushed the responsibility onto him for, you know, saying, you're going to influence other people to take it. And he'd already said out front, look, you know, it's going to be your responsibility, whatever I say. And so I just thought of that it's easier to tell a lie than it is to tell the truth. And off we go, you know. It's easier to criticize somebody else than to see yourself because, uh, you know, people won't accept responsibility for themselves. And it's very often, you know, that we all, and I included, uh, point our fingers at people and criticize or pass judgment on others when first what we should do is try and see ourselves. It's easier to criticize 
Part one, intermission. It's a very positive album, very up. You know, m most of the songs are love songs or happy songs, and it doesn't compare at all to the last album, which uh, was a bit depressing, actually. <laughs> Extra texture, read all about it. End of intermission, part two. The world is very serious and at times very sad place, but at the same time, it's it's a such a joke. <laughs> Taking uh, the material world as a joke, which in many ways I could see... Not totally. Or in many ways. At times yes. it is, yeah. Um, how do you deal with, and I, and I think you reflect your feelings about material comforts, wealth, and status symbols in this album. Um, it's all what no, you value. <laughs> oh, yeah, what you value. Um, tell us a little bit about the song and um, what you value where, where you stand on valuing symbols of wealth and accomplishment well that's like something to do with um, like one person can say have an opinion about something and something can be very important to one person and it can be of no importance whatsoever to somebody else it can be a big deal to one person and uh, no deal at all to someone else it's really a matter of values you know it's what you value really is as to um, you know they always talk about people having sets of, of values and so for me it was just that um, you know this thought came about because a friend of mine had this uh, I don't know we did this tour uh, and everybody got paid really well on the tour and there's this friend of mine who uh, I was trying to get him to play on the tour and he wouldn't do it and so I really needed him to play and so I was saying come on come on please play and he's saying okay finally I, I bugged him to death until he agreed to play and so he said okay but look I don't want to be paid for the tour but I'm sick of driving that old Volkswagen bus and I said oh well okay maybe I'll get your car so we got him a car and bought him a f Mercedes 450. And then some of the other people later I heard were saying, Yeah, how come he got a motor car? I only got, you know, this is one of them. <clears throat> so I just thought that in that song, there was, you know, someone's driving a 450 and his friends are so wild. They're still in their stick shifties, but they feel they've much more style. But I've found that it's all up to what you value, down to where you are. You know, that's all. It's really, you know, to one person, it's a big deal. To somebody else, it was just like a so, throwaway thing. Okay, so you know. So it's just your general overview of it, as yeah. opposed to your own personal feelings of um, 
living in the material world.
Interestingly, on 33 and a third, all but one of the songs are George Harrison compositions. You chose a Cole Porter song, True Love, which is one of the standards of the world, written from another musical era. You treated very uh, contemporarily, if there is such a word. You changed it slightly. Well, you know, Cole Porter got the chords wrong. <laughs> no, he he wrote some very, very fine songs. And I don't know, I think we might have even sang that tune in the past when we, we the ex-Fab Four Mop Tops, used to play in Hamburg in Germany. We had to play like eight hours a night, so we used to play uh, every song we'd ever imagined, you know? This is going back a bit, like 1959, I think it was. And we used to do uh, whatever we heard and whatever, you know, we could come up with in order to try not to repeat too many. Of course, we had our favourites, which we'd play a couple of times uh, in the night, but save for the main sets, which were when, you know, most of the crowd were there. But I think somewhere down the line we might have even done that song. But I don't know, just this summer I was <coughs> sitting around with the guitar and that song came into my mind and I just started playing it and then I thought that it's so, I don't know, it's so off the wall really it, and it's such a nice song anyway, it's very simple melody and very simple words, there's only about four words in it and uh, and yet it's a nice song, it's a love song, it's an up song and I just like the tune and I just started fiddling about with it and with the chords, and then I just heard that arrangement that it could be done just like that. That song could be done anyway, really. It's, you know, very well, adaptable. Well, it has a universal melody. I mean, Bing's holds. version sounds like, you know, it, he, he needs um, speeding up a bit or winding up. I don't know, it, it sounds a bit dreary. And I think this way, you know, it's got a bit more life in it.
were some of the influences that you've had in, uh, I imagine that uh, you expressed it in Pure Smokey, uh, one of the influences, or at least one of your appreciations in music. Yeah, yeah I, uh, just about, just a while back I was thinking, you know, with personal records that I like to hear, um, I went in the 60s, we were really into Tamla Motown, bef just around the time it was first breaking into all those sort of things. I always liked the Smokey Robinson and the Miracles from that period. And I found myself playing a lot of his records. And I dedicated a tune on the last album to Smokey. But I'd written this one at the same time as that song, which was Ooh Baby. Uh, this song, uh, uh, called Pure Smokey, was really, that was the title of one of Smokey Robinson's albums. And uh, it was really just like an idea that I had that sometimes, you know, when you like something and, you you know, if you never get to say to somebody that you appreciated it. So I thought I'd use this as a way of getting across a point of, um, you know, I didn't want to be late. I didn't want to die and, uh, you know, realize I hadn't told my dad I like him, you know, or whatever. It's like that. And so I think I try and make a point of, you know, if I really like something now, I want to tell the person I like it, you know, rather than uh, to find out that, you know, I should have done something and I never. And I just try and live like that now to... So this song just says, you know, I, in the past, like, I hesitate. I feel some joy, but before I show my thanks, it became too late, and now... All the way, I want to find the time to stop to say thank you, Lord, for giving us each new day. So it's just really uh, just to um, say thanks for certain things. And so then it just gets into Smokey saying, and you know, because I got a lot of pleasure out of his records, and so it's just a thank you.
Crackerbox Palace represent to you? When what is the mental image, the movie in your mind? Um, well, just as the lyrics say, first of all, the idea of Crackerbox Palace was, as in the third verse on the song, it says, "Sometimes a good, sometimes a bad." That's all a part of life. And standing in between them all, I met a Mr. Greif. Now, Mr. Greif isn't just a rhyme with life, as people will think. He was a, and is a real person. <laughs> Good evening, Mr. Greif. And I met Mr. Greif at Medem, and he's he used to manage Barry White and all this, you know, people like that. He's a manager. I met this guy, and I was uh, just talking to him. And uh, the way he was talking, I just said, hey, you really remind me of somebody. You remind me of, uh, I don't know if this is an insult or a compliment, but you remind me of Lord Buckley, who was my, he's my favourite comedian, this guy who's now dead, but, you know, he was like the first of the real hip comics. And I said, you remind me of Lord Buckley, and this guy nearly fell over. He said, hey, I managed him for 18 years. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, far out far out man he's the real lord so so he, as we were talking he was talking about lord buckley and he said how he lived in this little shack which he called crackerbox palace because buckley was everything was you know my lords ladies and gentlemen of the royal court everything was beautiful and up and everybody was royal with buckley and so he lived in this little place, Crackerbox Palace, and I just wrote on the back of my cigarette packet, Crackerbox Palace, I loved it, just the way it sounded, you know, the whole idea. So I wrote the song, though, and turned it from that into, it could be both the place where you live, but it's, I turned it more into the world, the, the physical world. I was so young when I was born, my eyes could not yet see, but by the time of my first dawn, somebody holding me, they said, I welcome you to Crackerbox Palace. We've been expecting you. Harrison also goes on to say that the comedic line that he says, it's two, it's two, during the instrumental break, is a line said by actress Madeline Kahn's character, Lily Von Stupp, in the 1974 Mel Brooks comedy, Blazing Saddles. Oh, it's two. It's two. It's two. It's two. Joy. 
things you're mentioning does the concept of love play it uh, it seems to be uh, intertwined throughout your material learning how to love you is, yeah. is one of the songs on this album uh, just the thought of learning how to love uh, says to me that that you look upon love as more than just a uh, something that is there to be taken off the shelf but something that you internalize and uh, think about I felt like when the 60s thing that happened and the main thing that I felt from uh, the result of the LSD thing which was earlier on and then later getting involved with meditation was the realization that all the goodness and all the strength and uh, things that can support life is all coming out of love and not just as simple as you know one guy saying to a chick I love you you know as a personally like an emotional sort of thing that is but the love of uh, just real love which is like unconditional love because so often we say you know I love you if you know I love you when <laughs> I love you but and that's not real love, love, love is is, I love you even thing. if you kick me in the head and stab me in the back I love you, or I love you, you know, just unconditionally, that goes beyond everything, 
and that is a pretty far out love to try and conceive and when I realized a little bit of love then I realized how shallow it was you know it's like with anything it's like saying okay you know I'm a singer now and uh, then you start thinking well how good how many notes can I hit how what was my limitation and you realize I want to be the greatest thing in the world but I am not because I'm limited by something and then it gets into a whole thing of trying to you know and with love it's like okay I love you but how do you measure it how do you live it how do you be it and then you realize how limited you are and then it's a process of learning how to develop that the and to be receptive to it to recognize it to and to be to it radiate that's it. the thing it's all right saying I love you but if you like people do that they say okay I, I love you but let's see it manifest you know I don't, I don't want to just hear the word I want to feel it and see it and be it
album 33 and a third. It's a good album and the critics were a lot kinder, but sales were not as expected, even though George did a lot to promote it. The LP sold well, and with the help of two mini promotional films for the songs True Love and Cracker Box Palace, the album rose up the charts, peaking at number 11 in America and number 35 in the UK. Meanwhile, over in San Francisco, California, on November 24th, at the Winterland Ballroom on the corner of Post and Steiner Streets, Ringo Starr joins the band during their farewell concert. Ringo and uh, Ronnie Wood are going to help us out on this one, too.
few days later, on the 26th of November, from his Dakota apartment on 72nd Street in New York City, John writes a reply to an interview from John's ex-wife Cynthia that appeared in Woman magazine. In the interview in the article, Cynthia accused John of being irresponsible and a bad father to their son Julian. Cynthia Lennon explains. While Julian lived in a modest Welsh cottage with limited possessions and money, Sean's bedroom was full of the most expensive toys money could buy. John had boasted publicly of splashing out on anything and everything Sean might want, yet he gave Julian only modest presents at birthdays and Christmas. Julian was not a materialistic child, but he was sensitive, and he could not help noticing the gifts, time and attention that his father lavished on his brother. These comments by Cynthia didn't sit well with John. He put pen to paper and found a need to respond. John's open letter response was sent to the UK and published in the Daily Mail, where Cynthia can read it. Another copy of the letter was also sent to Woman magazine. In the Daily Mail, Lennon's response was under the lead title, Lennon Tells First Wife, Stop Blaming Yoko. John's open letter read as follows. As you and I well know, our marriage was over long before the advent of LSD or Yoko Ono. Your memory is impaired to say the least. Your version of our first LSD trips is rather vague. You seem to have forgotten subsequent trips altogether. You also seem to have forgotten that only two years ago, while I was separated from Yoko Ono, you suddenly brought Julian to see me in Los Angeles after three years of silence. During this visit, you didn't allow me to be alone with him for one moment. You even asked me to remarry you and give you another child. For Julian's sake, I politely told you no, and that anyway, I was still in love with Yoko. Finally, I don't blame you for wanting to get away from your Beatle past, but if you are serious about it, you should try to avoid talking to and posing for magazines and newspapers. We did have some good years, so dwell on them for a change. On November 28th, the issues surrounding the APCO management lawsuit against John, George, Ringo, and Apple still loomed in the mists. John just dreaded the length of time and energy that it would take as Apple lawyers were preparing. In an effort to be done with the case, Yoko Ono contacted Alan Klein directly and arranged a settlement agreement. She also invited Klein to dinner at Sal Anthony's restaurant on Irving Place in New York. Both parties were pleased to put the legal issues of the past to an end. On December 10th, just in time for Christmas, simultaneously in America and in the UK, Capital EMI released the album Wings Over America. It's an exciting and lavish record of their performances, which were recorded from May 3rd to June 23rd at various venues. America. Maybe I'm amazed at the way you love me all. 
Things Over America is available at Bromley's Department Store. This was a triple live album package costing about £7 in the UK and $12 in America. It was an expensive package, but it was full value for its money and proved it by reaching the top album position on the charts of the day. The package peaked at number one on the Billboard charts in America and number eight in the UK. McCartney prepared a 30-second television ad for its release. Maybe I'm amazed at the way you love me Well, not everyone's into Wings Over America. Wings' new live album, 30 songs, 3 records, recorded on stage in America. Available on record. Thank you very much. Uh... Wings Over America. The performances were solid after the last few years of touring, and it showed. This old McCartney song was a highlight of the show, and was put out as a single.
America. Taken from their smash tour, McCartney attributes the successful tour to eagerness for audience reaction. We've been rehearsing so long now without an audience, and the only people who've been clapping is kind of maybe there's a carpenter in the studio or somewhere, or a bricklayer, and you, get, you hear a laughing clap from the back of the hall, you know. So it's really encouraging to get with an audience, you know, because they seem to like it, and so it gets you off, you know. The audience at first is curious. Can Wings really cook? Can Paul's new rock band ever come near to equaling the Beatles in excitement? Listening to the live version of Letting Go, the answer is obvious. Yes.
Wings Over America. There was a bit of controversy that came into play when McCartney changed the songwriting credits on all five Beatles numbers on the album. Instead of them being credited to Lennon and McCartney, they were credited to McCartney and Lennon. John never publicly commented on the songwriting credit reversal, although there was plenty of disapproval from Lennon fans and the musical press. Nevertheless, Wings Over America was a huge commercial success. How can Paul top this, one reporter asked, only to hear the answer, you'll just have to wait and see. the Christmas season, and to celebrate, the Beatles fanzine Strawberry Fields Forever issues a second Christmas record flexi-disc to all their fan club members. The record was sent out a few days after the holiday, but Joe Pope, the founder of the fanzine, did not disappoint. Desmond takes a wheelbarrow to the marketplace. Huh? We're on? 
<clears throat> Hello, and welcome to Strawberry Field's second annual Christmas record. We hope you all had a nice Christmas, and New Year's, and Valentine's Day as well. What we're trying to say is that we're sorry we're a bit late. But hey, look, we're here anyway, and that's more than you can say for there and everywhere. So let's take a vote. How many people would like to listen to me talk to the entire side of this record? Or how many people would rather listen to something like this? George Harrison's recent appearance with Paul Simon on the Saturday Night Live show. Next, we have John Ono Lennon on his 1975 appearance on a tribute to Sir Lou Grade. Ladies and gentlemen, 
ladies and gentlemen, John Lennon, etc. Side two. Even a little snatch of a tune might get him up again. Oh, I will let's sing. And you've got time to rectify all time and rectify all music. Badfinger was a group that wrote and recorded more than just a few little snatches of tunes. It's with great respect that we present this Badfinger song never released in the United States and we dedicate it to two men who were very influential in the success stories of both Apple Records and the Beatles themselves, Pete Ham of Badfinger and the producer of Storm in a Teacup, Mal Evans.
John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr singing Spiritual Regeneration at the Maharishi's Retreat in India. At the same session, they also recorded this birthday song for Mike Love of the Beach Boys. April 28, 1975, The Smothers Brothers Show, Ringo Starr.
Angel Baby. That was one of the great John Lennon songs that was left off his rock and roll album. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the record and we hope we passed the audition and all that sort of thing. And also thanks to all the people who helped make Strawberry Fields and Mystery Tour 1976 such a great success. And now we're going to close with one of the great all-time classics of recorded music. Paul McCartney, Linda Eastman, and Rod Stewart and his I've Just Seen a Faces harmonizing on Mine for Me. Play it loud. December 31st, New Year's Eve. John and Yoko spend New Year's Eve with James Taylor and Carly Simon, along with others at the Shun Lee Dynasty Restaurant, located at 900 Second Avenue and 49th Street in Manhattan. Happy New Year, everybody. 1977 will soon be here. We'll ring in the New Year at the Waldorf Astoria next on New Year's Eve with Guy Lombardo. Now we go to Times Square and Ben Drower to see the excitement over there. Take it away, Ben. Take it away? Oh, I hope I can talk. I just saw the sign up there and it said 15 degrees. This is the coldest New Year's Eve I've ever covered in almost 40 years. But these kids don't know anything about that. I didn't think that'd last this long. Last, by the, the crowds increase now. It stretches way up to 48th Street and down there to 43rd Street. There must be 50 to 75,000 of them. And they're here to say goodbye 76 and hello to 77. They're waiting to see that ball slide down from that tower up there at the, what used to be the Times Building, now called number one Times Square. And when that ball starts its move in two minutes from now, they'll know they've got less than 60 seconds to say goodbye to the old and hello to the new. And they're getting ready to make that shout that means when the ball starts moving. That ball I'm talking about is that golden ball, six feet in diameter, on a flagpole 100 feet high at the top of the Times Building. It's got 180 light bulbs in it. It's going to start moving. I think it has started. Yes, it's starting to move. Listen to the crowd. everyone that's gathered here is waiting for. Slowly it's starting to move. Listen to the crowd. Listen to this surge of hope for the new year that's coming as we greet it in traditional fashion in Times Square, New York. More, more, come in, come in, come in.
information or to contact the show, visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at yesterdaypod on Twitter and search Yesterday and Today Podcast on Facebook. See you next time. Paul Kaminsky. I'm James Kaminsky. And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. And we bring you the Kaminsky family of podcasts Yesterday and Today and the Third Men podcast. You might know me from one of those dumb voices I do, or my dad (laughs) from his better show than ours. (laughs) Wow. And we're here to tell you about some cool merchandise you can pick up for the shows. As we mentioned in each episode, we do not in any way profit from these shows whatsoever, but to break even on some expenses, we have put up some cool merch that you can pick up to help support the show. Yes, some fun apparel, things you can put on yourself. Are we going to be selling Marks and Spence underwear? (laughs) Don't worry, we will. You can head to our social media pages, that's facebook.com slash yesterdayandtodaypodcast or facebook.com slash thirdmen or you could head to society Six dot com slash Kaminsky Family Podcast. That's society the number six dot com slash K-A-M-I-N-S-K-I Family Podcasts. Yeah. Keep our lights on. I'm in the dark. <laughs> Dad, any words of wisdom? Hello? The lights just went out. <laughs> Guys, we need your help. <laughs> Buy stuff. Perhaps a coffee mug that you can enjoy a beverage out of while listening to our shows. And if you haven't got yours, please send forth in and get a free one. All right. Thank you, Dad. All right, we'll see you on the podcast, folks. Bye. It's audio. You can't see me. I would ask you uh, one more question, and uh, I've been working up to it the entire program. Um, Perhaps you'll answer it honestly and openly. Uh, When are the Beatles getting together again? Well, it's actually going to be on... uh